Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 11 and 12. Let's read these two verses and then we'll pray. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will, every one, obey the dictates of his evil heart. Shall we pray? Father, help us in understanding your word this evening, as we truly desire to know your heart. And your understanding of this passage, and of this chapter, and of this book. May you awaken us, O God, to its truth. And may we, Lord God, be ready receivers, ready receptors and receptacles of that truth, and of your love, and of your grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's a question that we need to think about in light of these two verses that we've just heard and read. The question is, would God ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible? Now think about the question. Would God ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible? You've got to think a little bit tonight. I mean, we've got to think all the time. <laughs> but you need to think about that question. Would God ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible? Now, you think about it. Now consider, the Lord would not ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible. You understand, you understand the reasoning here? The Lord would not ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible. You take the negatives out, and what does it say? The Lord is going to ask us, or require us in essence, to turn from our sins because it is possible. And it is still possible for that to happen, even if we think we've gone too far from God in our sins. That's the whole understanding here. And that's the whole point of my question. So if the Lord gives man an opportunity to return from their sinful ways, then it is very possible to do so. And what I find amazing in verse 12 is Judah's response to God when God says to them, Return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Why is he saying that? Because if they do that, he will bless them. But look at the response. Consider the response of Judah, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in fact, consider Israel as a whole. What's their response? Verse 12. That is hopeless. Folks, that's their response to what God is saying to them through the prophet. That is hopeless. That is in vain. There is no hope. Don't waste your breath. It's no use. I just gave you the statements of about five different translations. It's hopeless, it's in vain, there's no hope, don't waste your breath, it's no use. Now, let's backtrack a little bit and review for, the, for just a moment. 
We need to go back to what we studied last time in the first part of this chapter. Last week, as we began our study in chapter 18, we heard the Lord tell Jeremiah to go to a potter's house where he'd be given further instructions. But first he saw the potter at work. And the potter was making something on his wheel. And we were told in that first section of of this chapter that the clay was marred. And so he worked the clay again. Now there's a little picture there of us, isn't there? We come into this world as sinners. We, We come born into this world as sinners. Stained from the very first sin in the garden. So we come marred. But it's God who takes us and then makes us up again into a beautiful vessel. So here, Jeremiah is seeing this take place in the potter's house. The vessel is marred, but then he works it again. And uh, when the vessel the potter made was finished, the Lord made clear to Jeremiah that the potter and the clay illustrated his relationship with his people. So if you go back to verses 5 and 6, let me read those to you. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? In other words, folks, he's saying to them, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm the one that can do whatever he wants to do with the clay. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now remember that thought that the, the clay is marred. Always remember that. But what did we say the focus was, and what was the key to all of this thought in the potter's house? The focus and the key was to be on God's sovereignty. It was God's sovereignty. In other words, the Lord can do with His people as He wills. The Lord can do with His people as He wills. If we are the clay and He's the potter, He puts us on His wheel and He makes us. There's times when He breaks us. Because we've gotten hard. And then he puts his water on us again and softens us and makes us again. But understand the sovereignty of the Lord in these terms. He's in full control. God is always in full control. He knows the end from the beginning. By the way, he also knows the beginning from the end. Nothing is outside of his knowledge about his people. Nothing is out of his knowledge about us. In other words... Everything we think we hide from God, we can't. Why? Because He knows it all. His plans and His purposes are perfect and true for us. Always. Everything God does is for our good and for His glory. Always think in those those two terms. Everything that God does is for our good and for His glory. And let, let me say, let me emphasize everything that He does. Because sometimes those afflictions and those heartaches and those breakings... That's for our good too. But, where, but whatever he does and whatever he allows, it is always for his good. It's actually our good and for his glory. And while God's actions are always consistent with his nature, what is that? God's actions are always consistent with his nature because he's holy, he's always holy, he's just, he's always just, he's wise, he's always wise, and he's loving. He's, you know, he's always merciful and loving. And because of this, he chose to create man with a free moral agency and the ability to choose either to worship their creator or reject him. He didn't make robots, in other words. We talked about that last time, too. 
So what's happening to Judah? Judgment was near. Judgment was coming. When we started the book of Jeremiah, what happened? Whether we're 40 years away, just about 40 years away from this judgment. And then it got closer and it got closer. And a few weeks ago, it was 10, 10 years away. It's even closer than that now. Judgment was near and the Lord was still giving them an occasion to repent. Look at the opportunities that God is giving His people to repent from their sins, from their disobedience, from their rebelliousness. How many times does God have to do it? Even when He's already said, you know, my heart is already steadfast about what I have to do. Yet He gives them another opportunity. Do you see that? Okay. So again, consider their response to the Lord's prophet. Look at verse 12. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans. And we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. Now, what we did mention last time was, of course, that they just considered the fact that they were so far from God themselves, that it was hopeless. it was a hopeless situation to keep begging them to change. And so they were going to just continue to follow the dictates of their own heart. But one thing we didn't mention last time, One thing we didn't mention last time, and I want you to pay close attention to this, was that in closer examination of this verse, the closer we look at this verse, what they considered to be hopeless was not only their stubborn helplessness to change and to continue in following the plans of their sinful hearts, that was certainly part of it, but in fact, when you look closer at this, they were stating that what they saw as hopeless and empty were God's words through Jeremiah. They were saying, those words He's giving us are hopeless. Those words that He's giving us are empty. They're no use. You're wasting your breath. But what it did was cause them to ignore God's truth and walk after the imaginations of their own hearts. And because of this, they considered themselves, folks, let me say, they considered themselves to be beyond repentance. They considered themselves to be beyond repentance. Is anyone even to this day and on this earth at this very moment beyond repentance? Only in the mind and knowledge of God. Only in the mind and foreknowledge of God, because He knows. But He doesn't tell us, oh, don't talk to that person because he's beyond repentance. He says, preach the gospel. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go. But some people just consider themselves to be beyond repentance. So consider that these people had what, um, what you might call an eat, drink, and be merry mentality. An eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we will die mentality. That's what it is. We're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to be merry because tomorrow that's it. The curtain comes down. There's nothing left. Nothing else to do. We're going to die. 
So let's live it up. May I tell you that the atheism of today, the new atheism of today, which is very antagonistic toward Christ and toward Christianity and toward the Bible, that mentality cannot be substantiated intellectually and philosophically. What I'm saying is, it isn't a matter of the mind or the philosophical arguments that you can come up with. It comes down to a moral issue. It comes down to a moral issue. I don't want a God because a God requires things of me. Therefore, if I don't believe there's a God, that I can do whatever I want. And if, I, if there is no God, then in my mind and in my attitude, then when I die, there's no heaven, there's no hell, I just die. But folks, even if we think a little bit tonight, from the standpoint of being just a human being because of what we can do with our minds and with our voices and with our hearts our spirits, our souls as it were somehow, somewhere we came up with a purpose and a plan and these new atheists these new philosophers in this kind of ideal, idealistic society in their in their minds and by the way you need to include the very fact that they are uh, grand expositors of the theories of evolution not the fact of evolution but the theories of evolution because if they can believe all of that stuff then indeed there are no purpose and, and no plan for this life but why is it that we desire even if it's even if it's on a on a very basic human level, we are different from the animal kingdom in the very sense of that we can think, that we can express our thoughts. Where did music come from? Where did art come from? And please don't tell me that somehow some monkey, you know, picked up fruits and started throwing them on a wall, and all of a sudden it became art. Or some elephant picked up a, you know, a brush and started flinging things around. Oh, look, you know. The, 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 the fact still comes down to this. And Jesus was the one that pointed it out. Jesus was the one that made it clear. Of this eat and drink and be merry mentality because tomorrow we die. And many people today have that kind of mentality, especially those. There are some even who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ who have this mentality. Let's read about it. Turn to Luke chapter 12. I had to bring myself back to our study here because I started going off into that evolutionary atheistic thing. I'll talk to you another hour. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Literally over this matter. But he said to him, and he said to them, I should say, 
Take heed and beware of covetousness. First of all, Jesus pointed out the sin that this brother had. The whole idea of dividing the inheritance was a covetous, uh, 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 one that dealt with the issue of covetousness. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, Jesus is not saying that we're not to have things, or we can have things and, and, and be good stewards of the things that God's given us. He's just saying, beware of covetousness. Take heed, because your life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. I wish some Christians would learn that lesson. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, listen to this, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself. Notice there's the first problem. He thought within himself. He wasn't thinking in terms of prayer, in in, in terms of giving God glory, in giving God the uh, honor for all the things he had. He thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I've got so many things in in my household, so many things in my life. Look at all these crops. That's all money to me. It's as if he was saying, look, I I own Fort Knox. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater ones. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. Now this guy talks to himself. I hope he doesn't answer himself, but he does talk to himself. And he says to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now think about Judah in particular, but think about Israel in general. Because the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel had to go through the, the same thing with Assyria. The southern kingdom was now going to go through with Babylon. They were going to be judged. God was going to set this Babylonian nation loose upon his own people. And think about the sadness in, in this story. The sad part is that the people of Judah did not want to change. They didn't want to change. They thought they had everything they needed. They didn't think they, that they had to be scared by the prophets. Because they had their own prophets. Their own prophets that weren't following after God, but their own prophets who would tell them, listen, everything's going to be okay. Everything's cool. Don't worry about it. These other prophets, they're nuts. They're the far right. You know what I'm saying? I'm throwing those arguments around today. People who believe in the Bible, people who read and study and believe in God's Word, we are the nuts. Even though, when you, when you look down through history, history, history backs up the Scriptures. The, the, the reality is, Scriptures backs, back up history. <laughs> it's not the other way. The Scriptures are true. Go to Israel with me one of these days. Some of you already have. You know what I'm talking about. When you see the land, you know. 
This isn't made up. It's history. And the history was told in this book and still is being told. And I believe every word of it, from Genesis to Revelation, every word. I'm not going to stand up here like some people do in pulpits and say, I'm not really sure about this. So we won't deal with that. Just be nice. Be a nice person. Folks, we need to be right people. And in being right, we're going to be good people and we're going to be loving people and merciful people, but we are also going to be truthful. And as we'll see at the very end of this study tonight, truthful in love. The point of the matter is that there is something that they know is to be seen as right and they did not want to change from the wrongness in which they were. And now judgment was inevitable. See, that's the problem. Judgment was inevitable. There was no turning back. And at this point, Jeremiah would now contrast the unnatural apostasy of the people with the constancy and reliability of nature. Look at verses 13 through 17. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles, Who has heard such things? What, what, what such things? The unnatural apostasy of God's chosen people. Who has heard such things? And notice the phrase, the virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Now if you just stop and think about that, question, that statement for just a moment, what horrible thing could a virgin do? Just think about the question. The horrible thing that a virgin would do would be to go do everything it could to be a virgin no longer. In the wrong, impure way. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Then it says, will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Hold that thought. We'll get to it. Verse 15. Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. The ancient paths, by the way, were the true paths, the, the, the stayed paths. In other words, the, the right paths. You stayed on those, you're okay. Even if you face trouble or trial or winds of, of all kinds of doctrine, as long as you stayed on the ancient paths. What's the ancient path? Guess what it is? I'm going to get tired holding this book up every, you know, every five minutes here. You understand what the ancient path is? It's God's word. Why? Because the way is the critical statement. And what did Jesus himself say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the path. I'm the only path to God. I'm the only path to the Father. I'm the only truth about the Father. And I'm the only life that there is. And so he says... They have stumbled in their ways from the ancient past to walk in pathways, pathways and not a highway. To make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone who passes by will be astonished and shake their head, or shake his head, wag his head, one translation says. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. If they were to look at the pagan nations, folks, listen carefully. If they were to look at the pagan nations, they'd realize that even the heathen didn't reject their own gods. 
Do you, do you see the, un, uh, the unreasonableness here? Do you see the unnatural apostasy of God's chosen people? They should be trusting in their God. Instead, they're trusting in the gods of the pagans. The pagans themselves are trusting in their gods. As awful as that is, it's only natural. But the children of Judah, along with the Israelites, had done this very thing. They had rejected the Lord, and rejecting Him was an irrational and unreasonable as a thirsty person rejecting the snow or the running water to quench their thirst. That's what verses 14, or verse 14 is all about. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon when, when he's thirsty? That's the idea. It's an irrational, unreasonable thing that if you got water there you, and you leave it, if you're thirsty, it's irrational and unreasonable. And then to go to quench your thirst with dirt. And what a horrible thing had the, the Virgin of Israel done. What was that horrible thing? Instead of remaining faithful and pure to the Lord, they turned to false gods and to living wicked lives. In verse 15, the Lord points out that the people were also self-destructive. They had forgotten the Lord and turned to useless idols, which caused them to stumble as they walked through life. They had rejected the paths of righteousness, the paths of God's word and commandments, and chose to follow the paths of false gods and false religions. The roughest road that they could possibly follow in life was to go away from their God. Because it was one that led to destruction and not to life. It led to destruction and not to life. If people were more discerning, and, and I say if people, if Christians were more discerning, If believers in Jesus Christ or professing believers in Jesus Christ spent more time in God's Word than in the things of the world, where could they be in terms of their fellowship with God and Christ? Let me interject here a little parenthetical thought. If you're saying, I, I, I want to spend more time with the Lord... That's a good thing. Years ago when I went to China, and uh, we did some ministry there, we actually, uh, I was part of a group that uh, smuggled Bibles into communist China. But uh, we came in contact with a a Chinese Christian, a true Christian, because over there they have a state church, which everybody has to register to be in. But if you're a true Christian, you don't register in that church. You just believe in Jesus and you hide it. Sometimes you have to have church in the basement or whatever. But this uh, this pastor is, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. It's been so long, but... Uh, some of our team members spoke with him and asked him the question, what can we pray for you? What, what one thing can we pray for you? 
And he said that I, that I would know and love Jesus more and better. And I thought, he has suffered for his faith. He has led hundreds, if not thousands of people to Christ. And he says, I just want to know and love the Lord more. And he lives under constant surveillance. And is always expecting to be imprisoned at any moment. And, and by the way, he was, he was in his 80s at the time. He's probably with the Lord today. But he said that I might know and love the Lord more and better. And I, and I, I mean, it just made us all sink. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, our thoughts are, you know, well, I just pray that I can you know, do this, do that, have this, have that. He just wanted to know the Lord better. That's life, you see. That's true life. I want you to consider the contrast. Turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Beginning at verse 10. We're going to read a few verses here. Well, there in Proverbs verse 10, it says, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, I should say. Proverbs 4. Verse 10, Solomon says, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. This is the point I'm trying to make about hearing God's word and, and being in God's word and learning God's word and desiring God's word and, and wanting it more than anything in this life. He says, Hear these things and, and your, life, your years of life will be many. Now, I've made this comment before. He may he may be speaking of of of, uh, of chronological life in the sense of living a long life, but more than ever, we have to understand that in the scriptures, when it speaks of long life, it's speaking of quality of life. It's speaking of the quality of your life. So he says, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. There's the word. Paths. You want to mark that in your Bible. And then he says, When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Why? Because you are in right paths. In God's word. In God's way. In God's commandments. And then he says in verse 13, take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. You, you know, that's, that's an encouragement to say, it's not automatic, folks. It's not automatic just to say, I'm a Christian. I, I, I read the Bible once. That's all I need. I went to church once too. Is that all I need? I prayed once. Oh yeah, I've done that. What is the Christian life? Always taking firm instruction. Always wanting to know more and better the way of God. 
Take firm hold of instruction. In other words, grab hold of it and don't let go. And then he says, keeper. What? Her? Yeah, that's, that's speaking of wisdom. Keep that wisdom and instruction, for she is your life. Don't let it go. Too many people set it aside. And live that mentality of saying, I go to church once a week. What else do I need? The rest of the week is mine. That's no good, folks. We may go to church once a week, but I'll tell you this. It, we, we better live for Christ seven days a week. There's some of us here, I, I know, and I don't, I'm not trying to boast for anybody or whatever. There's some of us here that would be in church every day if the, if the, if the doors were open every night. Because we just love God that much. Can't be here all the time, but, you know, if, if it was possible. Look at verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Now there is warning. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. What did the children of Judah do? They went right down the wrong path, started embracing all the wrong idols, all the worthless idols of the pagans and the heathens, and then they began to construct their temples, their places of worship. In the high places, in the, in the acacia groves, now they were walking in the way of evil. But he tells them in verse 15, avoid it. Do not travel on it. Don't go that, that route. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. Some people just live to do evil. Some people just live to do things to mock God. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. The Christian wakes up in the morning and says, Lord, give me an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Somebody else says, you know, Lord, you know, give me just, you know, he doesn't speak to the Lord. He just speaks to his own soul like the guy in, in Jesus' parable. I want to get up. I want to see what I can do to be rowdy and mean and unruly. And if I beat somebody up today, he probably deserved it. And now I can sleep. Huh? Is, not, is our world not turning that way? You consider a lot of people that are getting in trouble nowadays and because there's cameras everywhere and there's phone cameras everywhere and, and you know, we're catching everything and then the reality shows are showing us all the things that are happening. The one thing that I notice is there is no remorse in people who do bad things anymore. There's hardly any remorse. You could care less that they've hurt somebody, killed somebody, stolen somebody, raped somebody. There's no... They just, they don't care. Folks, that's the, that's the dangerous times in which we live. And that says we are in the last days right now. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But notice verse 18. One of the most beautiful verses in the book of Proverbs. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. A few months ago, it was winter, you know, it was cold. We don't like the cold here. It's not really cold. Hey, go to Minnesota. 
But it's cold enough for us to complain. And we can't wait till the sun shines. But can you imagine that the path of the just is like the shining sun, warm, warming us, light, lighting our, our way? The warmth of the sun also causes growth, doesn't it? The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. And you know what the perfect day is? The day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord. Of the Lord's return. The day of Christ. The day of God. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Now we see the connection with Judah. Stumbling all over the place. Because they've chosen to forget God. They've chosen to burn incense to idols. Worthless. And it has caused them to stumble in their ways. Proverbs 10, 29 says, The way of the Lord is strength for the upright. We not only have the light of God and the truth of God, we have the strength of God. But destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. I don't know about you, but I think I would want to take the first route, not the second. In verse 29. Proverbs 16, verses 17 and 18. The, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. But notice verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. So what was Judah's problem? Pride. They were no longer humble before their God. They were prideful. They were prideful of their idols. They were prideful that they could still go into the temple and offer meager sacrifices in the temple of God and then go back and offer sacrifices to their gods. Listen to their prophets say, oh, everything's going to be cool and everything's going to be right. When God's prophets, Jeremiah, for instance, is crying out to them to turn from their wicked ways. So verses 16 and 17 then of our text, going back to Jeremiah 18, present the very serious consequences of rejecting the Lord's warning. Judgment and destruction. Those are the consequences. Judgment and destruction. But look at verses 16 and 17. To make their land desolate in a perpetual hissing. Whenever people in the Middle East would do this hissing sound, It was a sign of disgrace. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and shake his head. They will be wagging their heads at the very very way that the destruction had come upon Jerusalem and Judah. And then he says, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Judah and Jerusalem would be disgraced and become an object of scorn and ridicule to all who passed by. And as if there were a mighty wind blowing from the east, the people who would be scattered in exile before an enemy invader, that would be Judah. Because now Babylon was coming. 
But what would be most tragic is that the Lord would turn His face from them. That's the most tragic thing here. When the Lord turns His face from them. Notice the way it says, I will show them the back and not the face. Some of us would say, that hurts. Folks, it more than hurts. What God is saying is, I'm going to alienate you. And I'm going to cut you off from from my help. Yet how many times has the Lord pleaded with him? Even Jesus himself, hundreds of years later, would plead with God's chosen people. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. There's the problem. They weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. We've seen that word already, haven't we, in Jeremiah? Their land will be desolate. He says, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rich Freeman made reference to that this weekend in his study. Baruch HaBahashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that day's coming for Israel. God has not rejected his people completely. But if we know the hostility of the people in the time of Christ's earthly ministry, then we will know the enmity that was held against Jeremiah the prophet for his message to them from the potter's house. Hostility sets in. It's it's been there already because we've had to deal with the fact that there have already been conspiracies and plots against Jeremiah. But look at verse 18. It says, Then they said, Come and let us devise plans. I like what the King James says. Let us devise a device. (laughs) That's a great usage of words. Let us devise a plan, or devise plans against Jeremiah. And then they say, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. I'll tell you what that's about in a minute. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Give heed to me, O Lord. Now this is Jeremiah speaking to God. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Listen to what they're saying to me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them. Lord, don't you remember how many times I stood in the, in the gap for them? Now they want to kill me? But I stood in the gap for them to speak good for them to turn away your wrath from them. But why does he say that? Because look at verse 21. Therefore deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Has Jeremiah taken a an about face here? He was trying to save his people before. Even God was telling him, quit praying for them yet, you know. I'm already saying what i got to do. But you see, now they've turned against Jeremiah and he's saying, hey, do, do what you're going to do. <laughs> Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword in, the ba- in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me. And he had to mention that again. They're already ready to bury me, Lord. And hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel which is against me to slay me. 
Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Uh, Now that last phrase, understand, Jeremiah did not put himself in the place of their executioner. Or in the place of their judge. He immediately turned it back to God. And he says, don't blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger, not my anger. Your anger. I have to say that because you'll see why in a moment. Because the first thing to note in verse 18, going back to verse 18, if you will, is that the people were rationalizing their sin. They were rationalizing their sin in verse 18. You see what they were saying? They said, oh, let's, let's devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. So what they were saying in essence was, look, let's just get rid of this prophet Jeremiah. Besides, the Mosaic law and the counsel of other wise men and other prophets will still remain. So in other words, they believed that they still had right on their side. They still believe that they had right on their side in spite of Jeremiah's words against them. Remember, they had their own prophets who were telling them, don't worry, things are going to be good. And then they spoke of dealing with a prophet through false accusation. And yet this false accusation was still uh, was to still lead to killing the prophet. It wasn't just going to attack them with their tongues. Literally, they wanted to kill him. That's why he mentions twice, they've dug a pit for me. But I want you to think for a moment of the viciousness of the tongue. Because this is what they're going to use to attack him. Notice, come and let us attack him with the tongue. The viciousness of the tongue, folks. Psalm, 54, uh, Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul, this is David speaking, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Jesus talked about us killing, not with a, with a real sword, but with the sword of the tongue. Think about it. Psalm 64, verses 2 and 3. David again says, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. Bitter words. You know... It's one thing to see this happening in the world. It's another thing when it happens in the church. And bitter words start to fly. That's why Paul spent a lot of time talking about backbiting. Spent a lot of time talking about gossip. Spent some time talking to the church about being busybodies. Getting yourself in the middle of somebody else's situation. goes on, man, and it hurts. It hurts the church. It hurts God's people. Because bottom line is, much of the time, it's lie. It's lies that are being promulgated. Bitter words. Psalm 12, going back a little bit. Psalm 12, verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Cut off those flattering lips, Lord. You seen that commercial? Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head? Y'all seen it? 
I think that's one of the funniest commercials on TV. Mrs. Potato Head just talking, man. The lips are going, blah, 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 blah. And they, they're, they're, this group of sheep are on the road. And, you know, Mr. Potato Head has to put the brakes on. And all of a sudden, Mrs. Potato Head's mouth flies off, falls away. And she's looking at him with a certain pair of eyes, and she changes the eyes to real mean. But then, but she still, but she doesn't have her mouth, so he he just drives on. And I I thought, wow, cutting away flattering lips. When God does it, 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 it's not a funny commercial, man. It's it's truth, and it hurts. But it's the pride. Who's Lord over us? We'll attack. I got to say it, folks. I've got to tell you. Some people get together just to spread gossip under the guise of prayer. And I got to tell you, you stop that. Don't be spreading rumor and, and, and thing un, under the guise of, well, we need to pray for these people because, you know, God hates that, folks. Psalm 50, verses 19 and 20. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Wow. That happens. And it's evil. Notice that in verse 19, let's go on, because we can spend some time there and I don't have that much time left. Notice that in verse 19 and following, Jeremiah responds to these plots. So in 1920, he says, Give heed to me, O Lord. Listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Jeremiah had become aware of the plots against him, and he went directly to the Lord in prayer about them. That's what we need to do. Go to the Lord in prayer about these things. And he asked the Lord to listen to him and to what his opponents were saying, which brings to mind something that Jeremiah had said back in chapter 11. So turn back to chapter 11 and look at verses 18 through 20. And again, remember, this is the same prophet. He says, Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the fruit with his, uh, the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be, may be remembered no more. But, O oh, Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. And again, you think, here's Jeremiah, who's, who's been standing in the gap for these people. Now he's saying, Hey, Lord, just bring, uh, bring your judgment on them righteously. And yet there, there, had to be, uh, there had to be something disturbing to Jeremiah, which he could not understand. Because there he was interceding for the people, praying that God would not destroy them, and, and they wanted Jeremiah dead. So, so I believe that we are going to see Jeremiah get a little frustrated over all of this in the following verses. So now listen to the tone. Therefore deliver up their children to the famine. Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. The young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses. When you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and hide and hidden snares for my feet. You almost think that Jeremiah said, get them because they were attacking me. You almost could, could think that, you know. But notice, go on. Verse 23, Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel which is against me to slay me. He says that because he's saying, Lord, I know that I am your prophet. I'm your prophet. Now, then he says, Provide no atonement for their iniquity, 
nor blot out their sin from your sight. In other words, it's not me. You know, I'm frustrated. I'm a little angry here. But it's not about me. It's about you. So let them be overtaken before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Again, let me add, not mine. We are that way sometimes. We get this anger builds up in us. And we think it's all... But at some point we come to the realization, but you know what, Lord... (laughs) It's really against you. It's really against you. And you're the righteous judge. So you deal with it. So there had to be a tremendous internal struggle in the heart of the prophet Jeremiah. Because one moment he's praying and weeping for the people, even pleading for them. The next moment he's upset and asking God to destroy them. So some commentators considered um, Jeremiah's prayer to be a harsh, a bitter plea for vengeance. They claimed that he was gripped by a spirit of sinful, uncontrollable anger. But this is most unlikely, and I'll tell you why. Because Jeremiah truly knew the Lord, and he walked ever so closely with him. He knew the Lord. He was human. Hey, Peter was human, wasn't he? We talked about Peter many times as, we were study- as we've been studying the book of Acts. Peter was human. He could go off on his things, you know. But he was so close to the Lord. And there would be a time where he would realize, well, not my will, Lord, your will. It's more likely that crushed under the weight of persecution, Jeremiah fled into the presence of the Lord in search of personal help, but also the vindication of God's holy word. Because although his words seem harsh, his concern was not personal vengeance or revenge, but the vindication of God's name and God's holy word. They refused to repent. That's, that's, that's been happening. It's, he's finally getting it, you see, as God has given it to, uh, allowing him to see what's going on. They refused to repent. His strong request did not spring from wounded pride as much as from his identification with God, the Lord God, and the demands of the covenant. The Judites had rejected God, and for this they deserved judgment. Not because he was being attacked, but because they had rejected God. So we need to remember that there is a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger against sin that is acceptable to God. Listen to these passages, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Well, that first part comes from Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. David's words. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Be angry with sin, but meditate on your, within your heart. Be still. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. You know, that's another lesson that we as Christians need to really, really consider well in our hearts. If we love the Lord, we need to hate evil. If we love the Lord, we need to hate evil. We've become too tolerant with evil. He says, He preserves the soul of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. If we love the Lord, we need to hate evil. Jesus showed righteous anger at the hardening of his critics' hearts. Listen, look, look, at, look at this example of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. 
So they watched him closely, all of the scribes and Pharisees. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And notice verse 5. I love verse 5. And when he had looked around at them with anger. Can you imagine Jesus looking at people with anger? Woo! Man, that would cut to the quick with me. Right? Take those beautiful eyes of Jesus on and put those other ones. You know? <laughs> Look at things with anger. Jesus doing it? Why? He was righteous. He was true. He was just. He was pure. He was holy, holy, holy. And he looked into the hearts of these people. And then he, it says he was being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They never once sensed the holiness of Jesus. Because all they had their eyes on was the Sabbath law. Paul was angry. Paul was angry at professed believers who were leading others astray. This is why he said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to stumble and I, and I do not burn with indignation? If I know that somebody stumbled because somebody has been made to stumble by even a professing believer, I burn with indignation over it. Paul was angry at, at people who led others astray. Let me give you uh, some words by Warren Wiersbe, who, who, who writes this uh, great statement. I, I want you to pay attention to what he says. He says, and I quote, Unrighteous anger takes matters into its own hands and seeks to destroy the offender, while righteous anger turns the matter over to God and seeks to help the offended. A- anguish is anger plus love. And it isn't easy to maintain a holy balance. And then he says this. If Jeremiah seems angry to us, perhaps some of us today aren't angry enough at the evil in this world. Wow. That's a tremendous statement. If Jeremiah seems angry to us, perhaps some of us today aren't angry enough at this evil world. At the evil in this world. Thanks to the media, he goes on to say... We're exposed to do, we are exposed to so much violence and sin that we tend to accept it as a normal part of life and want to do nothing about it. Crusading has given way to compromising, and it isn't politically correct to be dogmatic or critical of ideas that are definitely unbiblical. Folks, we are not called to be politically correct. We are called to be biblically correct. First in our lives. And then when we can do something about something, we ought to act by God's leading and by God's grace, but always in the love of Christ. And I close with this thought here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to bring you back to the question I asked earlier, beginning of, this, of the study. But look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers 
For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. And I want you to notice something. As pastors and teachers, we are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But notice this phrase, and I would underline this and highlight it and mark it in all kinds of ways, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And again, to cause growth of the body for the building up of itself in the love of Christ. God wasn't done with Israel and he wasn't done with Judah and he wasn't done with his people. But there was a time that God said it's enough and judgment's going to come. And still, still to this very moment, God makes and gives them an opportunity to repent. Would God ask us to turn from our sins if it were not possible? It was still possible even to the 11th hour And folks, I tell you this, I believe, I do believe in deathbed conversions. I don't want to say that all of them are, in fact, conversions, but I do believe in them. I believe that there are some people, you see, because of God's willingness that none should perry, that all should come, uh, none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe that there are some people that that might be the last, that's their last hope. And when they realize that last hope, with the very breath that they still have, even to the very last breath, for them to say yes to Jesus, to repent of their sins, to ask God for forgiveness, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, to believe that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins, to believe that he was buried, but on the third day he rose again from the dead, and to accept the truth of Jesus Christ and to say yes to Jesus, that person would be saved. And even if he died with the next breath, after the next breath, he would see the glory. That's the wonder of God's salvation. That is why we aren't called to save anybody. That's why Jesus said to us, go and make disciples of every nation. I'll save them. I'll win them. You preach my word. You live so people can see me in you. You do that. 
salvation is mine. We are to speak the truth in the love of Christ. Let's pray.